This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. get into this discussion with my next guest because I think he is someone who has an expertise uh, that we are coming to as a nation value even more. Christopher Goldsmith is the Chief Investigator and Associate Director for Policy and Government Affairs at Vietnam Veterans of America, a congressionally chartered veterans service organization. Uh, he's been leading efforts to study the targeting of troops and veterans online for the purposes of fraud and disinformation campaigns by foreign entities. Uh, his portfolio centers around new veterans covering a broad range of issues He's also the founder of High Ground Veterans Advocacy, a small nonprofit that trains vets uh, to engage successfully with government on policy changes meant to improve the lives of service members, veterans and their families. Christopher Goldsmith, it is such a pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. You know, uh, we've spent a lot of time on these airwaves talking about the ways that veterans are often targeted for recruitment uh, vis-a-vis disinformation campaigns uh, in ways that at least, you know, as an army brat, I don't remember hearing uh, the vets in my family having discussions about some of these topics. So we're seeing an increased targeting, or at least what seems to the public like an increased targeting of veterans for recruitment into uh, spaces that are often uh, very heavily uh, surrounded by disinformation and which can also lead to engagement with white nationalists and other groups uh, that are engaged in acts that would properly be considered domestic terrorism were they being perpetuated by other communities. From your experience, can you talk with us about why veterans are being targeted in this way? And is it, as the public believes, an increase that we're seeing or have we just not ever really had conversations about uh, the ways in which veterans are susceptible to this type of targeting before. <laughs> well, you gave me a lot to, to work with there. So um, just a bit of a professional update. So I'm no longer with Vietnam Veterans America. I've actually launched a small firm. It's called Sparvarius. Um, and it is named after the taxonomic name of the American kestrel. It's the smallest predatory bird in the Americas. Um, and the reason why I chose the name is because it's also the most prolific the most uh, numerous predatory bird in the Western Hemisphere. And most Americans have seen one, but have no idea what they've look, been looking at. Mm. And that's, that's the way that, that I operate, is out in the open. I'm not, not a hacker. I'm not some sort of, you know, I don't have any training as a spy or in intelligence or anything. What I do is called open source intelligence uh, research and investigations. So the reason... Uh, what started my research when I was at Vietnam Veterans America was finding an imposter Facebook page using our, our, our name, our logo, photos of our CEO at, um, at memorial sites, laying wreaths. Um, and the Facebook page had, by the time it was shut down, a quarter of a million followers, which was more than double wow. uh, our own Facebook page. Make a Long story short, I spent the following two years investigating 10 different ways that uh, foreign entities target troops and vets with everything from um, stealing the identities of those who've been killed in action so that they can use their names and photos as part of romance scams, 
which often target gold star families who are at their most vulnerable state after they've mm-hmm. lost someone in combat. And to the Russians of the Mueller report, who were actually buying Facebook ads to target the very organization that I was working for at the time, mm. Vietnam Veterans America. So why are veterans, why is this community uh, targeted so often? It, it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, it is something that you know has, has happened in, in every war. It's the disinformation for, or the information war, I should say, has, has been around for as long as civilization. The targeting of veterans is because we are an economically efficient target. What I mean is, is that for every uh, minute, every dollar uh, that uh, a hostile entity spends on trying to influence the opinions, the beliefs, um, even the voting behavior of a veteran Mm. is a good investment because they're more likely not just to get that individual if they're able to to change uh, their attitude, but also that individual's family, uh, also that individual's immediate social network, meaning the people that they hang out with, the people that they work with. So if you break down American society any other way, uh, race, class, color, creed, economic uh, stratus, there is no group that is more influential within the United States uh, than Mm. veterans. So I I should add the caveat, uh, as a result of of four years of of Trump being the commander in chief, we have seen the first and and a very steep decline in Americans' trust in the military. So that may actually change. Wow. In light of that, and in light of the fact that, as you say, this is something that actually is as old as warfare, uh, and this is something that is actually quite prevalent, and we've had other guests on who have talked about the fact that after every war, you do see uh, this sort of targeting of folks who have come back, service members who come home. Uh, In light of what you just said, when you look at the continuing fallout from the January 6th insurrection, were you surprised that so many service members were a part of that effort? It sounds like that that is the natural outcome of what you just spoke about. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if you've had her on the show before, but Kathleen Ballou, Dr. Kathleen Ballou wrote a book called Bring the War Home. And that mm. studied um, what happened to a lot of Vietnam vets who were targeted by white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups uh, after they returned home from the war. Yes. Um, you know, and, you know, one, one thing that I want to say is there, there is no evidence that, um, service members or veterans are uniquely susceptible to propaganda. It's just that they are targeted more mm. often, which is which is why this population is is worthy of study. So even things like post traumatic stress disorder that might be associated with war don't necessarily, uh, according to any published studies, make a person more likely to be um, radicalized. Um, so. You know, one of one of the things that, uh, you know, was was upsetting to me uh, on January 6th and, and leading up to it was folks like me who study the far right, who study disinformation campaigns, knew exactly what was going to happen on January 6th. Mm. We were writing it. We were sending reports uh, to law enforcement, to intelligence agencies, to congressional offices. And because 
our capital had not been attacked in, in over 200 years, there, there wasn't, <laughs> people weren't freaking out the way that uh, intelligence analysts were on, mm. on my side. Um, you know, and, and to be frank, it, it is hard to imagine uh, a situation in which the commander in chief is not only doing everything that he, that he can to frustrate efforts to stop his, uh, his followers from committing a coup, but has got his entire administration, uh, at least the political appointees who hadn't been fired by that point, working mm. alongside him. Mm. When you think about or, or when you're investigating what's happening with far right communities today, you know, I was sharing before you came on uh, just some of the reports that came out over the course of last week, looking at the fact that there was a PowerPoint presentation about the coup, looking at the fact that, uh, you know, there are still a lot of updated reporting coming out about the uh, failure for the National Guard to show up when they were requested. There were several hours of, of debate that seemed to happen before they were actually deployed in any meaningful way. When you look at what's happening within far right chat circles today, as we the public are just now becoming aware of some of these more salient portions of the investigation, what are you finding? What are they talking about? What is their conversation? What conversations are they cultivating about January 6th? And what conversations are they cultivating about the future? Well, there's no there's no um, great separation between between what uh, Trump and his alkalites are saying and what the, the far right are saying about January 6th and mm. and the, the election um, that they believe was stolen, despite the fact there's no evidence. What they have done since um, since about a year ago, when Facebook finally started taking action and stop and shutting down all the stop the steal groups and the stop the steal Facebook pages is they've migrated into alternative social media platforms that mm. normal people don't use, like Telegram and Gab, which frankly exists, Gab exists to give a platform to neo-Nazis. Like that is the wow. explicit purpose of, of uh, why Andrew Torva created it. Mm. You know, and I think what, what most people, um, would be most disturbed by is this guy, Andrew Torba, who's running this anti-Semitic uh, platform, is he's creating what's called, what he calls the parallel economy. They're trying to insulate themselves from the social and economic costs that are being associated, that are typically associated with someone being outed as mm. a neo-Nazi, as a nationalist socialist, as a white supremacist. The way that they're doing that is, well, they got kicked off of Facebook, so they're trying to build their own, right? They got kicked off of Twitter, mm. so they're trying to build their own. That's what Gab is. Well, they're also getting deplatformed by, um, by internet service providers and uh, payment service providers like PayPal. So now they're creating their own payment processing. Wow. Systems. When you introduce things like cryptocurrency, which are extremely difficult to track um, mm. because they create these online throwaway wallets uh, for every purchase. Um, we, there is an entire international uh, dark money network that is unprecedented. You know, technology is, is advancing every day. And, and these folks are, um, 
are luring in people like uh, Dr. Paul Gosar, the, the, mm. uh, you know, the, the guy, uh, the representative from Arizona. He's, he's Gab's like newest hero um, because he's, you know, willing to associate openly with white supremacists because guys like uh, Kevin McCarthy are, are spineless and, you know, uh, tolerant enough of racists that it's pretty clear that Kevin McCarthy is a racist. Mm. So the idea of having an alternative world where they're able to basically uh, absorb the, the penalties or the costs for being outed as an open racist or white nationalist on these other platforms. I'm imagining you, you'd said that, you know, these are places and platforms that average people don't go. I'm imagining that these are also places where average law enforcement personnel may be less prevalent. Well, <laughs> maybe less prevalent from a surveillance perspective, maybe very prevalent from a participatory perspective. Uh, but how what is the hand? That I mean, you know, I'm just saying, uh, do we have a handle mm-hmm. on how effective uh, law enforcement is at com- at infiltrating these spaces, at tracking what's happening here and at tying that to actual efforts to engage in acts of, of that could be seen as domestic terrorism? So one of the problems that law enforcement has had and in, in this, you know, um, January 6th really made it very clear to folks who um you know, might have had certain assumptions about what law enforcement is able to infiltrate and circumvent ahead of ahead of time. Law enforcement, especially at a federal level, have convinced themselves that they cannot take action or or do things like, you know, what uh, what a right wing politician might might slander as spying um, until there are reports of planned acts of violence. So to be clear, someone could, you know, operate a page on Gab where they could advocate for uh, for violence in general. They can advocate for the exclusion of of Jews or of people of color, um, you know, in, in a whole host of things. But the FBI can't and won't do anything against those actors unless and until they're talking about specific threats of violence. So, you know, what can we do about that? We can't just sit here and and hope for change. We have to fight for it. And, you know, that's going to take, we currently have a democratically controlled government. If we want to change laws, we've got about a year to do it. Uh, If we want to, you know, have uh, Joe Biden, you know, press further on this, he needs to hear from, from us. He Mm. needs to be pushed he, he said he ran because of Charlottesville and the neo-Nazis who were out on the street. Right? This, this right. is something that he became president to address. Well, they need to take a, a harder uh, turn on it. And the only way that they can do that is if the voting American public uh, make it very clear that this is what we want and need. I'm really glad you said that on this show, we give ourselves assignments because we're not just trying to have discussion. We want to have discussion that lights a path forward for how we should act and take action. And so, folks, what you just heard was a call for our first power work assignment of the week. And that is to reach out to this administration. All of you should already have the five calls app downloaded into your phone and or you should have each of your elected officials contact information and social media outlets and handles in your phone. We've already established this, guys, Uh, but we have to let them know that they must 
up the ante on these investigations and they must do the work of ensuring that these types of uh, spaces where we see folks gathering, we see that they are engaging in discussion about how they can further perpetuate uh, uh, these acts of violence, these disruptive acts that really are seeking to preserve uh, sort of the white supremacist hierarchy and ideology, we have to make demands that these are investigated and that the laws are changed so that this cannot continue to happen. Now, Christopher, I got to be honest with you. When, when I hear people from government, not yourself, but I mean, just in general, uh, people from government say, well, you know, there's the First Amendment and we have to protect rights. And, you know, there's this fine line we have to cross when there is a discussion versus action. I got to be honest with you, Christopher, I'm a black woman. And as a black woman, I know that black communities don't typically get that level of consideration when it comes time to investigate what it is we're doing. I'm thinking back to over the summer, uh, two summers ago, when those peaceful protesters in D.C., uh, the helicopters were flown down low. They were tear gassed also uh, that the former president could have a photo op with a Bible outside of a church that he held upside down. Uh, So, you know, I'm very clear that if it had been Black Lives Matter protesters who had come towards the Capitol that day, we would be today talking about the mass funeral that had to take place because they would have been summarily put down uh, violently. Mm -hmm. There would not have been one shot fired. There would have been shots fired. They would not have made it to the steps of the Capitol. They would have been shot dead on the lawn. Why is it, do you think, and I I have a feeling I I might know where you're going with this, but I'm really curious as to your perspective on why it is that we seem to not be able to employ the same tactics that are readily and easily deployed against black and brown peaceful protesters against white people who are planning to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power and take over the Capitol building. Yeah. So, um, so let me, let me start with caveat. I, uh, I used to be part of the anti-war movement, which involved marching and protesting. And I, uh, since uh, leaving that, that movement, and I can kind of guess like a a formal way of having been a member of Iraq veterans against the war back in the day. Um, I no longer encourage people to get out in the streets and that's because Mm. of the, the level of police violence that I've seen. Um, and the, you know, it's, I, I would, I could never, and again, I'm, I'm a white guy with a bald head tattoos and a beard. Like I'm not going to get hurt, but I don't want to tell anybody that they should get out in the street because of the things that I've seen, uh, not not mm. just personally witnessed, but all over television. So, you know what what I uh, try to encourage is change through through lobbying, through advocacy. And if uh, if you saw, I think it was two weekends ago now, there was this neo-Nazi group called Patriot Front that marched through D.C. and they had yes. a police escort. And at the end of uh, at the end of their little neo-Nazi boy uh, Hitler Youth March, they were escorted by police into to load up into the back of U-Haul vans, and they were allowed mm. to drive away. There were no police following them. There was no attempt to um, pull these people over, at least get the identities of the drivers, who I'm sure were breaking some sort of local code. So, you know, what what do we do? Well, we don't march on police stations to change laws. We, you know, flood Muriel Bowser's uh, office with calls saying the next time that a neo-Nazi group starts loading into the back of U-Hauls, the police must pull them over and take every single person's identification and, and you know, charge them with, uh, with disorderly conduct. Mm. I mean, we need to 
we need to do this in every single city because these neo-Nazi marches are going to keep happening. And the imagery um, of police escorting them and then allowing them to get away yes. is uh, it, it, it is not just, you know, good for the propaganda that the neo-Nazis are going to create themselves. But when witnesses and the media are documenting this, it highlights the obvious injustice. Mm. You know, and, and I'm not looking, I don't want the neo-Nazis necessarily to get hurt. I don't want them to get beat up by cops. But I do want the federal government to have access to a, a, a list of their members. Right. Because if and when it does come time for uh, them to take the next step of investigation. If someone gets a tip about plan of violence, so the FBI is able to take that, you know, uh, to be brave and, and go after the organization, it, it'd be a hell of a lot easier if the city of DC or Philadelphia or Austin, uh, had a, had a membership roster that they could just hand over and, you know, have 200 addresses of right. Nazis around the country that they can go question. Kind of like they do with gang patrols. <laughs> when they're investigating gangs, they have gang units. They keep pictures and images, contact information, identifying markers like tattoos, very thorough databases that allow them to really pinpoint who might be involved. So thorough, in fact, that all you have to do is, is be a black teenager out on the street during school time. You get pulled over for alleged truancy uh, and your name could be an image could be entered into some of these databases as well. So uh, once again, we have this reality where what's good for the the goose is never good for the gander. But I'm worried, Chris, defer, because the, the reality is we don't we in communities of color do not seem to have an elected uh, an administration, though, all, even though, you know, black communities, communities of color help to elect President Joe Biden. We do not seem to see the same level of urgency at combating these issues, at least not the way that they were talked about on the campaign trail. As you noted, he uh, President Biden did indicate that what happened in Charlottesville was an uh, vibrant part of his rationale for why he wanted to run. What is it that you think, if, if our elected officials choose not to act, you said we have about a year before they can pass some laws to make a difference. If they choose not to act, what is it that we, the people, are left with in terms of, of viable options, not only to, to keep ourselves safe, but to save the daggone democracy in which we all live? <laughs> so, you know, what we did um, under the Trump years is uh, is what we'll have to go back to. You know, we'll we'll have New York, we'll have California, we'll have you know other big uh, stereotypically blue states where we can push local change. You know, there's there's never a time um, when we when we should give up. Uh, it is important to relax and it is important to take a breather. And I think all of us have learned the hard way in the last five years that, mm. you know, running yourself ragged makes you less effective. Yeah. So, you know, if if and when the Republicans take, take back the House and we essentially have a, this, you know, a non-functioning federal government, it's it's time to put all of our efforts into the states, the the laboratories mm. of democracy uh, to, to see what we can do to, you know, make sure that we take meaningful action against white supremacist, white nationalist gangs. Wow, that was very sobering. I, I was I, I knew you weren't going to have a magic wand to wave. And yet and still, I hoped that you would. 
uh, because the, the reality is that that returning to the states as a location of power, uh, you know, I, I'm in I'm in New York City. I'm in the Northeast. You know, I, I feel very comfortable, although I, I often tell people New York City is a big red state with a big blue center. Uh, we often think New York is all blue. It is not all blue, but we have an, enough of blue, uh, uh, blue spaces uh, that allow it to feel a bit safer. But I'm thinking about, you know, in this audience, we are it's a national audience. We have a number of people who uh, were sort of the first communities of people of color to integrate their communities. They were the first people of color to integrate their schools. And I fear that uh, if, as you say, as the if the Republicans are able to successfully take the House, which would be in keeping with historical precedent. If Donald Trump is able to reclaim the White House, uh, then even those people who are in those states where they are just, quite frankly, grossly outnumbered, they're going to have a lot of decisions that they have to make, uh, as will we all. Are you optimistic about this? Do, do you have a sense of hope that that goodness will prevail? And, and I hate to put it in, in moralistic terms, but do you have any sense of hope that white nationalism will ultimately be defeated and that this country will able to be the diverse democracy that it has sort of pretended to be for all these years? Um, I, I, to say that I'm hopeful would be a stretch. I, but what I can mm. say is, is that my hope will not expire until I do. And uh, until I expire, I am fighting. And, you know, my frustrations with the way that the government has dealt with this problem is why I do what I do. So mm. Sparvarius is a small uh, is a small but hopefully growing uh, business, and it, it is modeled on not just sharing intelligence about these neo-Nazi groups and these white supremacists, but undermining them, sabotaging them. I, you know, am, am using my identity against them. I'm I'm a bearded white guy with you know uh, no hair and, and a bunch of tattoos. I can show up at a protest, and these guys think I'm one of them. I could sit mm. down next to the bar at them and they'll say all sorts of things to me that they certainly wouldn't say to most other folks. Right. So it's up to people like me and especially white male veterans to get as close as we can to these people and impose social and economic costs in every that we every way that we can, um, you know, without uh, stepping over the line and, and violating the law. You know, my, mm. my goal in creating this uh, in creating this organization, in working with um, Human Rights First and Veterans for American Ideals, is to create a sense of paranoia in the white supremacist world. I want mm. them to think that every time that they're trying to recruit a veteran, that they might be recruiting me. And, mm. well, you know, sometimes they are. And it's up to people like me to spend our time and our energy and you know, sometimes money and sanity uh, and, you know, make make America safe for the first time. Wow. We my final question for you, and I'm, I'm hoping we can get you to come back because I know this is a lengthy conversation and we've only scratched the surface. But we will often have listeners who are self-identified as white Americans who will call up and, you know, they may ask what should they do. They may send in an email or they will they'll call up and say what it is that they are doing. What would be your message to the average white listener, someone who is already sort of a part of a smaller group because they're listening to this channel? Right? So what would you say? Uh, 
uh, to well-meaning white brothers and sisters who perhaps don't have a military background, but who see what's happening, who sit at those dinner tables, who know uh, the history enough to know that we are in some very dangerous times. What would you say to them about their role in in following your example and or uh, creating such levels of discomfort for the safe spaces that white supremacist thought tends to occupy that they can be a part of really helping to bring about the change that this country needs? So another lesson that, that folks like me learned over the past five years is, is you're wasting your time if you're trying to convert these people and then bring them back to reality. You know, mm-hmm. de-radicalization, taking someone out of a cult, the cult of Donald Trump or of white supremacy, uh, that, that takes doctors and it takes specialists. The average wow. person can't do that. But what the average person can do is engage with other white people in the community who you know, have have been living comfortably and haven't been touched by this stuff. And one of what what I started my nonprofit High Ground Veterans Advocacy on is storytelling. It's humanizing people uh, and engaging average folks, not just lawmakers, policymakers, uh, but average folks to help build movement. So there's no sense in trying to fight, you know, your your idiot Trumper uncle uh, at the at the Thanksgiving or Christmas table. Mm. But there is, you know, uh, an opportunity maybe to get your your cousin or niece or nephew um, who might be sitting at that same table to, um, you know, put their put their energy to good use to, you know, Frankly, if if more people went to school and studied liberal arts um, Mm. (laughs) from my community, I think we'd be in a better place Uh, because, you know, what I never understood growing up, having served in the military, being a, you know, a, a veteran out in the real world. Until I got into school, I never sat down and debated what is justice for weeks on end. I never had to write essays about you know, what is right, what is just. And, mm. and that type of critical thinking skill is the antithesis to the Fox News disinformation bubble, right? And I, yeah. I try to tell people all the time, the problem, the reason why, like, smart people from the right, like Tucker Carlson, uh, are harping on critical race theory so much is not because of the word race. Race draws people in, uh, you know, from, from that um, from that side. But the word critical is it. Mm. It's the critical thought. It's critical analysis. And that is poison to Fox News uh, and, and the money uh, and the ad revenue that they get from keeping an outraged viewer base. Wow. Whew. Education is the key, and it is literally why it is the front line of so many battles in this nation. Christopher Goldsmith, you are a national treasure. I do hope we can get you and your insight back on these airwaves because this is a conversation that absolutely must happen on an ongoing and regular basis. And I feel so blessed every single day to have this beautiful audience, which is uh, largely populated with people of color, also largely populated with white people, uh, because I think we are able to teach out these conversations in a thoughtful way and I'm really grateful for you joining us today and helping us to do just that thank you so much for being here how can people follow you and stay connected to the work that you're doing and support your amazing nonprofit thank you so uh, my name is Christopher Goldsmith spelled with a K and an F uh, so if you google me I'm, I'm pretty 
pretty easy to find. Just follow me on Twitter. That's where I do most of my work. I try to engage with anybody who reaches out with uh, reaches out to me. Um, and from there, you know, uh, I can connect you with my nonprofit, with my current work, and uh, with with some allies in the space. I, I would really appreciate that. We want to feature as many voices as we can of folks like yourself who see what's happening, see what's going on, uh, but who need to be more amplified so that we are filling up that that vacuum, uh, that echo chamber with, with some different ways of seeing the world, more righteous, I would say, uh, and just ways of seeing the world. And shout out to liberal arts. As a fellow liberal arts major, uh, I cannot disagree with that at all. Christopher Goldsmith, it has been such a pleasure having you join us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been great. Have me back any anytime. I'm willing to, willing to talk to you. It's been oh, wonderful. that's great. That's great. Thank you. Shayla, I just put that note in the spreadsheet. Let's make sure we follow up. I'd love to have Christopher come back and uh, some of get recommendations from him about other folks who are doing this work in this space. 